Thank you, Taylor. Good morning, church family. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, by your Spirit. and We come to you in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name that saves those who place their faith in him, uh, the name who has purchased for us uh, forgiveness and access into eternal life, uh, all for free uh, for those who, uh, who trust. And so God, thank you for uh, Charlene, thank you for Andre, thank you for their uh, baptism, their testimony today, Lord. I'm so uh, encouraged, energized by their testimony, so sobered by uh, all that they shared, so thankful for your work in their life. Lord, I, I pray that you would be with us now as we open up your word, that you would uh, speak to us and that you would uh, teach us, Lord. There is so much confusion in our world. And so, God, we pray that you would give clarity and that, uh, that you would replace lies with truth and that, uh, and that you would speak and that we would leave transformed. God, I pray, Lord, that you, your voice would speak and that you would be heard through your living and active word. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, my name's Ted. It's my privilege to serve uh, as one of the pastors here, and we are making our way through uh, the book of Genesis. We are just coming to the end of chapter two uh, uh, this morning. How did Anakin Skywalker become Darth Vader? How did that happen? How did Tony Stark become Iron Man? How did Bruce Wayne become Batman? How did the Joker become the Joker? How did Cruella DeVille become Cruella DeVille? What was Sheldon like when he was young Sheldon? How did Aslan create Narnia? These are questions of, of origin. If you, if you haven't noticed in our culture that there's more and more origin stories being produced. We are obsessed to try to figure out how did all of this start? You see, here's the thing. If you know why someone or something got started, you will know why they act or do what they do now. If you, if you know what a stapler was created to do, yeah, I mean, you could ex open up your, your stapler from your desk and mix pancake batter with it. You could do that. But a wooden spoon or a spatula was created or designed to mix pancake batter and a, and a stapler was made to fasten pieces of paper. When you understand the origin, when you understand the purpose, it gives clarity in terms of what is this for? What, what, what does this mean? And, and until we understand the purpose, until we understand the why of something, we won't understand the what or the how. But so often in our world, we just want to, you know, we want to look up on the YouTube video on how to do it, how to do it. And we want, we want the how, we want the what. But the book of Genesis tells us the why. The purpose. So today we're going to be uh, talking about, again, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a man and a woman, and what it means to be married. 
And we're going to look at the origins of humanity, the origins of manhood and womanhood, and the origin story of marriage. And we're going to explore what is the purpose, what was the design behind human beings? What's the design behind men and women? And what is the design behind marriage? And we're going to find out the why so that we can then live out the how and the what. Now this type of message couldn't be more relevant in our cultural context where a sexual intimacy outside of marriage, before marriage, without marriage is normalized, divorce, a marital infidelity is on the rise, even marriage itself is being redefined, redefined in Canada by the Civil Marriage Act in 2005, and now we're redefining what it means even to be a man or a woman. So it's vitally important in our cultural context to, to come back to the origin story of marriage. And then even within our church context, met a lovely couple uh, this morning that's, that's just got engaged and looking forward to getting married. So we have some people who are here as they think about marriage and manhood and womanhood and they're, they're engaged. We have others who are newlyweds. We are other, have others who have been married for decades or some who are single and content in their singleness. Some who are single and wish they were married. Some who are married and wish they were single. We have some who are divorced. We have some who are widowed, recently widowed. Or who are still living with that empty chair or that empty side of the bed year after year, even decade after decade. We have children here who are being co-parented or single-parented. So there's a cultural context, and there's also there's, there's a church context. We're, we're a church family, and there's such a wide, broad range of experiences as it relates to manhood, womanhood, marriage, and family. And then there's a biblical context. Genesis 2, we're on day 6 of creation. God has already spoken the universe into existence. Chapter 1 gave the, the broad overview, the panoramic view of this creator God speaking everything into existence. Chapter 2 zooms in on the setting of day 6. We learned about the Garden of Eden. We learned about God fashioning the man, handmade him, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And now, the drama is about to start. We have the setting, we have one of the main characters, and now the drama begins. We're going to see from this text something to learn about human beings, something to learn about men and women, and something to learn about marriage as well. Here's the first thing that we can get from this text. First off, human beings are created for community. Human beings are created for community. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. It is not good that man should be alone. Now this is day six of creation. And for the first five days of creation, God's been on a roll. At the end of every day, he's creating things and he's calling it good. The, 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 the the, the light, the sky, the, su the stars, the sun, 
they're good, they're good, they're good. And then he starts making rocks and rabbits and, and tulips and tortoises and trees and mountains and magpies and monarch butterflies. He's making all of these things and they're all good. And then after he fashions Adam with his hands, after he breathes into his nostrils, he looks at Adam and he says, it is not good that this man should be alone. Now, I want to be clear about what this text is not saying. God is not saying that it is not good to be single. Adam was single. Adam was complete in and of himself. Adam was an image bearer and could relate to God and could live a fulfilled life as a single person. This isn't just saying that you have to be married in order to be fulfilled in your life. That's not what this is getting at. It's just that human beings were created to be social creatures. We were created for community. So whether you're married or single or widowed or divorced or engaged or young or old or a man or a woman, God created you for community. He created you for relationship. It is not good for you to be alone. We've created this new way, this sort of phony community that being alone, but we think, well, because I'm online, that I'm, that I'm not alone. And we can be so thankful for the internet and the ways that it connects us, and the way that we can share photos and messages with one another and connect with people in other countries. We can be so thankful for that, but it is, it is not good for man to be online. It is not good for man to be alone. Online and alone. If you're exclusively online, then you're still alone. If you're, if you're watching this today from home, it's time to come back to church. Don't be alone. And if, you're, if your plan here is, you know, you, the sermon's going to wrap up and then the third song is going, or sorry, the third verse of the last song is going to start. And that's where you start to head for the exit. And you came in just in time for the, for the announcements because look, you're coming to church, but you're, you're pretty much still alone. That's not good either. We were created for community. And one of the opportunities that we have right now with having one service and pray for us because it's getting fuller and fuller is we have an opportunity. We don't have to worry about getting ready for another service. We can stay out here in the foyer for hours and not be, it's not good for us to be alone. So we have the opportunity to be together because we're created for, for community. So understand this. Adam as a single man was not incomplete. He did not need marriage to complete him. Some people think that they need to be married in order to be complete. That's not true. Adam was a full human being, fully complete. But creation wasn't complete. And God's purpose for Adam, he he designed him to be in relationship. Now we've seen this as as Moses is, is retelling the creation story. We've seen this movement from empty and incomplete to full and complete. So again, I'm not talking about Adam, I'm talking about creation. So creation in chapter 1 verse 2 was without form and void and it was dark. And then in 1 3, God said, let there be light. And in creation, there was no bush and no rain because there was no man. And then in 2.7, the Lord formed the man. And in 2.18, it was not good for the man to be 
alone. The man was complete, but creation wasn't complete, and his purpose for the man was not complete until he had someone to relate to. And he says, I will make a helper fit for him. So then we have this this weird moment in verse 19. It says, now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, some people teach this, and I read this in commentary after commentary. Some people teach this, like God was bringing the different animals and then to see if they would be a good partner for Adam. Like, here's an ostrich. And Adam's like, no. Here's a giraffe. No. Like... That's not what's going on. Read the text. It says he brought every beast of the field to see what he would call them. Adam was an image bearer. God would create things and name them. And so Adam, as an image bearer, was going to start naming creation. And then the narrator says that at the end of all of this, at verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. It wasn't that Adam kept swiping left or swiping right or whatever with all the animals. It was that as Adam looked at all the animals, he saw the, he saw the male lion with the lioness. And he saw the rooster with, with the hen. And, and he saw the ram with the ewe. And, and he recognized that all the other creatures had partners. And then Adam realized, well, God had Adam go through this exercise to realize that, no, no, he needs a partner. He needs what's, what's called a, a helper fit for him. So human beings, first off, are created for community. Now, something about men and women. Uh, men and women are designed differently. Men and women are designed differently. It says in verse 20, a helper fit for him, the same thing that God said in verse 18. Now, don't get thrown by the word helper. Adam does not need a secretary or a maid or a servant. That's not what helper means here. God looked at Adam and said, this guy needs help, all right? The the, the aim here is is complementarity. The word is ezer. Now remember, in order for us as the audience reading the passage now, we have to step into the shoes of the original audience. When Moses was first writing this to the freed Hebrew slaves who were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, what what would the word Ezer mean to them? Well, they would remember when Moses met with his father-in-law Jethro, Moses, or Moses said this, he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Same word, Ezer, helper. So the, the, the term helper for, for a woman is, is by no means demeans the woman, but in fact elevates the woman. It's the same way that, that Moses described the way God helped him. Moses was like, I was helpless. All I had was a stick. 
And God turned that into a snake, and then I put the stick in the water, and it turned to blood. God was, God was my helper. Ask any man who's married, just like, don't look at me, it's all her. She was my help. You see, it, it doesn't put women down, it, it lifts them, it lifts them up. And for the original audience, because they had lived so long in Egypt and the way Egyptians treated women, just like property, and in the way the surrounding culture treated women, Moses is retelling the story to remind the men in the community to say, your, your wife or your sister or your Mother is specifically designed to be a helper. And that is a beautiful and glorious thing to be celebrated. Then it says a helper fit. The Hebrew word there is neged. It means to be in front of. It, 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 or, or opposite. Or on the other side. The woman was, was created to be a helper fit, a helper who's opposite, who's on the other side. When someone's on the other side of you, you look them in the eye. As Moses here is, is emphasizing the equality between men and women. Yes, women are different. They have a different role. They're created to be the helper, which is a good thing. But they're also equal. They look the man in the eye. So then verse 21 says that God put Adam into a deep sleep. He performs the first surgery, you know, sort of like anesthetic. Wouldn't want to be awake for a rib removal, that's for sure. And so he removes a rib. Men and women are designed differently. Adam was made out of the dirt. He was created outside of the garden. Eve is created out of a rib inside the garden. They were designed differently. Men and women are designed differently. Now we're so glad that God has done this. And there are some things that the Bible teaches us that we have to take by faith. There are some things that we can't see ourselves, but we just trust in. There are other things that the Bible says that are just abundantly clear. We can see it with our eyes. We see it with our eyes every day. That men and women are designed differently. We do see with our eyes every day. I mean, there's the obvious, you know, aspects of reproduction, the private parts. That's pretty clear that men and women have been designed differently. And Pastor Chris, a couple of weeks ago, talked about right down to our DNA, right down to our chromosomes. There's differences right down to the length of our, our ring finger or our pointer finger. Our, our bodies are just different. Our blood is different. Men have 20% more red blood cells in their body than women. Women have more water in their blood than men. So in the short term, you know, in the course of a week... The average man needs less sleep than the average woman. The average man could exercise longer than the average woman. In the short term, because of the way the man, man's body is constructed, it seems like he has more energy. Ah, but in the long term, the average woman lives three to four years longer because they're designed differently. 
Men, the average man, has greater total body coordination, where women have better abilities with small motor skills. Our bodies are different. Even our brains are different. Man's brains are bigger. But don't let that go to your head. (laughs) Because women's brains actually have more gray matter which is where the thinking actually happens. (laughs) Men's brains are wired front to back and back to front. Things move this way. Women's brains are wired side to side. Men have a unique ability to compartmentalize things, much to the frustration of women where women have the ability to see the interconnectivity of things. Dinner is dinner, but dinner is also included in what happened at breakfast. Where the man's just having dinner. This is dinner, right? Like, it's 6 p.m., not 7 a.m., but for the woman, it's all interconnected. Our brains are different. Women have the ability to learn languages faster because they make the kind of grammatical and linguistic connections that men with a front-to-back brain can't make as quickly. But because of the way a woman's brain is wired, she's far more likely to have a stroke than a man. But a man is far more prone to become addicted to alcohol because of the way that his brain is wired. Men and women are designed differently. Listen, women are not from Venus and men are not from Mars. They're both from Earth. It says it right here in the Bible. (laughs) But we are designed differently. Think about the command in in chapter, just turn over to chapter 1 verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then look at the tasks he gives them. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, there's there's two things that human beings are supposed to do. Be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. So who has the body and the brain that helps with filling the earth and subduing it? Who's able to compartmentalize and who's able to exert more energy and strength in the short term? Who's physically and and in terms of their thinking able to do that? The man is. That doesn't mean that the woman has nothing to do with it. She's participating in it, but the, the man is designed to help with the fill the earth and subdue it part. Who is specifically designed to be fruitful and multiply? It's not that the man has nothing to do with it, but the woman is designed to to hold and protect and preserve and to give birth to life. So even within the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it and to be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve were were to partner in it, but in their very design, they, 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 they were strong in one area or strong in the other. You see, the, the, the modern feminist movement, and what I mean modern, I mean like in the last 120 years or so, has come in multiple f- phases. You might have heard of first wave feminism, second wave feminism. I don't know what f- wave we're on right now or if you can even be a feminist anymore in our world. 
First wave feminism really emphasized women should vote or women should have a place in the workforce because women bring a unique perspective. They're designed differently. And if you cut out the women's voice, then you miss out. Society doesn't flourish the way it ought to because you're silencing the perspective of the female, which is distinct from the man. Now, first wave feminism was not perfect, but that was a, a, a wonderful thing to emphasize because it's a biblical truth that men and women are designed differently. Second wave fem feminism started do, making phrases like, you know this phrase, girls can do anything boys can do. And in, in some way that's true. But first wave feminism was more fully orbed because, yeah, there are some things that women aren't allowed to do that they should be allowed to do because women can do a lot of the things that men can do. But first wave feminism emphasizes, what the Bible emphasizes is that girls can do things that boys can't do. See the difference? There are things that boys can do that girls can't do. But there are also things that girls can do that boys can't do. And second wave feminism is tried to blur the lines between what it means to be male and female, almost accidentally. Listen to one of the leaders of second wave feminism, Gloria Steinem, who did wonderful things of exposing the evils of pornography and, and a whole bunch of corruption within our world. She did wonderful things, but also had a skewed understanding of what it means to be man and woman. Listen to what she says. We women are human beings first, with minor differences from men that apply largely to the act of reproduction. That's just scientifically incorrect. It's, there aren't minor differences. We are different in every way. Then she says, the only functional difference between men and women is the woman's ability to give birth. That's not true either. And then she concludes, therefore, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. No, women do need men. And men do need Women, we, we are designed differently, and that is God's good plan and good purpose. Not just within marriage, but within the workplace, within the community, within the church. We are designed differently, and that is a good thing. That is part of God's plan and purpose. In verse 22, it says, Then... This is the rib that the Lord had taken from the man. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice, you know, in a, a, a Western wedding ceremony, you have the father bring the bride to the groom. That's taken from this verse. God brought Eve. God was Eve's father. He brought Eve to Adam. And then the man said in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Notice how everything's indented in your Bible. That means that this is poetry. Remember, Hebrew poetry doesn't always rhyme, but there's parallels. So he says, he says bone twice, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then this doesn't come through as clearly in the English, but it says she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Ish, isha, bone, bone, flesh, flesh, ish, isha. Adam is stating the equality that he has with this beautiful creature. Imagine, just think about, Adam has never seen another human being ever. And then on top of that, Adam has never seen the beauty 
of a female human being. And he erupts into poetry. I love this because Genesis tells us God created the world in, in six days. I don't want to argue with about that. But So Adam's been alive for less than 24 hours. And he puts in his poem, this at last. <laughs> Adam's like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. Oh my goodness. And I, I feel that every time I do a wedding uh, ceremony. I've got a couple lined up. I'm so excited about this spring. And I'm standing there beside the groom. Everyone always wants to see the bride, right? When she first comes out. But just make sure you take a quick look at the groom as soon as the bride comes through the door. This at last. When, when he sees his beautiful bride, that's what, that's what Adam was like. Matthew Henry, in talking about this whole rib thing, sums it up beautifully. He says, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And again, in the cultural context that Moses was writing in, this was not how women were being treated. And Genesis is helping to correct that. So, human beings are created for community. Men and women are designed differently, and God brings Eve to Adam, and they're going to get married. So now we're going to learn something about marriage, that marriage is to be enjoyed exclusively. Marriage is to be enjoyed exclusively. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his Wife, look at, look at the characters that are involved here. You have a man, so you have Adam and Eve. This is how it all got started. This is the origin story. Adam and Eve did not have a mother and a father, but Adam and Eve were going to come together in marriage and become a mother and a father. And this was going to set the tone that, that a man will leave, um, one man will leave his mother and a father, one man and one woman, and join together with his wife, one woman. You have the mother and the father, one man and one woman, and you have a new marriage being established, one man and one woman. It is to be enjoyed exclusively between one man and one woman. Here at Hope Church, we believe what the Bible teaches about marriage's origin story. We believe that the, the purpose of marriage is laid out for here. Marriage isn't something that human beings are created or established. Marriage has been instituted by God. So right in our doctrine and belief statement, uh, we, we have a statement on marriage and sexuality. It says, we believe a person's biological sex accords with his or her gender identity as male and female which God, our creator, designed at conception and gave as a gift to be embraced with gratitude and worship. Marriage is a holy covenant and lifelong union between one man and one woman and is designed by God for his glory. For a husband and wife's enjoyment and companionship, sexual intimacy and procreation and to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed and consummated only between a man and a woman when they are united as one flesh in 
marriage. This is God's design for marriage. This is God's design for sexuality. This is what the king says. This is what our creator has established. Now, our world sees things very, very differently. Our neighbors see things very, very differently. When we name something, we need to understand the limitations of language. When Adam, you know, looked at the creature with the long legs and the big long neck and the brown spots, and he called that a giraffe, and then he looked at the tiny, cute, fuzzy bird with the sort of oversized head and called that a chickadee, if Adam decided to call, this, to call the chickadee a giraffe on day eight of creation or day nine of creation, if he decided to call that a giraffe, that doesn't mean that the chickadee all of a sudden has long legs and a long neck. It's, it's still, see the limitations of language? You can change what you call something, but it still is what it is. If I decided to change my name to Drake, (laughs) that doesn't mean I get to live in a mansion downtown and get front row seats to the Raptors. I don't get to show up and say, hi, I'm Drake, so I am entitled to everything that goes along with being Drake. Do you understand the limitations of language? And so in our world, we've changed the labels, haven't we? We've, 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 we've tried to redefine what marriage is. And our world is free to do what they want to do. But the reality is very, very different. This is the origin story of what a marriage is. And whether you call it marriage or not, this is God's... The word marriage isn't in Genesis 2, by the way. So there are limitations, we can change the words, but, but that doesn't change the reality. So our doctrinal statement, we try to lovingly, because we believe being loving is being clear. So our doctrinal statement talks about the, uh, the biblical definition of marriage and sexuality and manhood and womanhood. But we also need to understand that we have a mission statement. And our mission statement is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them like we saw Andre and Charlene getting baptized today. And we're supposed to go and make disciples in a certain way in accordance with the great commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor. So when we encounter our neighbors or our coworkers or our family members, who have a different perspective or a different definition on marriage, we, we might, listen, we may not agree with them. We may not approve of the decisions that they are making, but we can always, always, always treat them with love and with respect. Because that individual or those individuals are created in the image of God. And by that, they are inherently worthy of dignity and honor and respect, even if we disagree with them. It doesn't mean that we approve, doesn't mean that we agree, but we show dignity and we show respect with those who disagree with us. 
So marriage is to be enjoyed exclusively between one man and one woman. And it's supposed to be exclusively for that one man and that woman for one lifetime. It says the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. They are to hold fast. Leaving the father and mother doesn't mean, you know, spatially. It's not talking about location. If you're living in your parents' basement and you're a newlywed couple because no one can afford to live in the GTA, that doesn't mean you're disobeying the Bible. It's, it's, what it's saying is there's a new loyalty that's being established. A new family has been established. That your main priority and your main loyalty is now to your spouse. And we're supposed to hold fast. That's the word for ad- adhesive or, or glue. It's meant to be permanent. And again, for the original audience, if you read Deuteronomy 24, God is instituting a command to, to deal with and curb what seems to be like rampant divorce, divorce for no reason. And so in Deuteronomy 24, Moses, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, lays out this law saying, no, you got to give your, your spouse a certificate of divorce. You can't just kick her out of your house. You need to show, you need, this is Eve. This is a, a beautiful helpmate who was created to be fit for the man. You, you can't treat her like that. And then Jesus said later in Matthew 19, again, quoting Genesis 2, he says, Moses and God instituted that law because of the hardness of the men's heart. And then Jesus reiterates this passage and says, no, the idea is that the two shall become one flesh and they shall hold fast to one another. You see, here's the thing. When you glue two things together, two pieces of paper with, you know, a Yoohoo glue stick, two pieces of wood with PL Premium, can I get an Amen. Love PL Premium. When you glue two things together and then you pull them apart, you can expect damage. You can expect damage. And so when a marriage is established, when two people are glued together, sometimes we think, oh, the escape the escape is for me. Just, I just need, we just need to pull apart from one another. We just need to divorce from one another. But there's, there's, da- there's damage to your spouse. There's damage to you. If there's children involved, there's damage to your children. You can't pull two things apart that have been glued without there being damage. That's why Jesus said, what, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So the, the The man and the woman are to leave their father and mother. They're to hold fast. They're to be glued together. Now, some of you are here today, and you have experienced that damage because you have lived through the agony of a divorce. And I don't know what kind of a counsel you were given at the time or whether it was your choice or your your strange spouse's choice or, or whatever. But you need to understand that although that damage is seriously, that isn't a damage that the gospel can't heal. Remember the Lord Jesus met a woman at a well from Samaria. She had been married five times. She had been damaged so much. And yet Jesus loved her and she was saved. And then she was used to go and spread the gospel in her village. So remember, we're, we're to be holding fast. We, we make promises in front of witnesses and most importantly in front of God. Because it, 
Jesus said what, what God has joined together. We make promises like better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health till death do us part. Think about the beautiful testimony we heard today. It's been better sometimes. It's been worse sometimes. There, there's, there's, there's been good things that have happened and really, really hard things that have happened. But you're still together. Because your marriage is supposed to picture something bigger than yourself. You see, the aim of marriage is to become one flesh. Yes, men and women are so different, but they're designed to complement one another. We need to celebrate the differences. We're to become one flesh. But that's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Because men and women are really different. And I mean, in the next chapter, men and women sin. And then we, sin enters into the picture. Not only are we designed differently, but we also sin and our sins affect our spouses more than anyone else. I mean, our friends can put up with our sin every once in a while. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a flirt or if you're financially irresponsible or if you're never on time for things or, or if you have anger problems, your friends might encounter that every once in a while and there's no real consequence. But your spouse, if you're an angry person, your spouse has to deal with that every day. If you're financially irresponsible, it doesn't matter to your friends if you go into debt, but it sure matters to your spouse. So our spouses deal with our sins and our shortcomings in, in a way that no other human being can. So it is hard. It's also hard because our world is, thinks that romance is the ultimate end. And we've, we've, we've lost sight of the fact that all the best romantic songs and all the best romantic movies all say, I'm going to love you forever. Which is commitment. There's nothing more romantic than commitment. And yet our world is committed to romance. And if the romance feelings go, then I can back out of the commitment. We don't need to be committed to romance. We need to get romantic about commitment. I'm going to love you forever. And I am a person of my word. And I'm not going to go back on it. That's what it means to hold fast. That's what it means to become one flesh. Theologian Stanley Howard summers this up so, so beautifully. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment. Necessary for us to become whole and happy. Remember, Adam was whole before Eve was created. Eve was whole before she married Adam. The assumption is that there is something just right, there is someone just right for us to marry. And that if we look closely enough, we find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Every married person's afraid to say, like, can I agree with that? Well, I don't know. I don't. Can I say amen? He looks smart. He's got a tie on. But that seems like I'm in trouble if I... He says, we, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or, even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Becoming one flesh. 
The biblical math is one plus one equals one. That's impossible. Exactly. Exactly. And then verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The, they, they hold fast physically. They become one flesh physically. They are naked physically and they are not ashamed. They enjoy all the beauty and ecstasy of sexual intimacy. And there's no shame. I kind of don't want to finish this sermon. I know some of you are like, please finish this sermon. But I kind of don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to, Go past verse 25, because I just got to be honest with you, spoiler alert, it's like all downhill from here. I'm reading Genesis in my own personal devotion, so I'm way ahead of where we are right now, but it, it gets really, really bad. I mean, even with marriage, you got this guy Lamech in chapter 4 who marries two wives. Abraham commits adultery, sponsored by his own spouse. You got everything in Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. Jacob, again, gets two wives in chapter 29. And Judah commits adultery and, and, and incest and, and prostitution all in one shot. And that's just the sexual ethics. There's all the lying and the cheating and the stealing. Like, the men and women, they were, they were naked and they were un ashamed. Physically, psychologically, socially, mentally, they had nothing to hide from one another. You see, sin destroys marriage just like sin destroys everything else. Sin destroys sexual intimacy just like sin destroys everything else. So the rest of Genesis, yeah, it's, it's a train wreck. It's a dumpster fire. But thankfully, the Bible doesn't end with Genesis. The Bible keeps going. And there's this promised one. And when he finally shows up on the scene, he's called the bridegroom. And he tells like three or four different parables about, about a wedding, right? People getting invited to a wedding, and they're like, I don't want to go to your wedding. And other people who are at the wedding, and their lamps run out of oil, and there's someone who goes to the wedding, and they sit in the prompt, they're sitting at the head table, and then they get told, you're not supposed to sit there, and that's kind of awkward. And someone who comes, and they, they don't have the right wedding clothes on, he's always talking about weddings, parable after parable. Weddings, 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 weddings. And then he meets this woman from Samaria who's had too many weddings, His first miracles performed at a wedding. The God who made woman out of man makes water out of wine. Backwards, wine out of water. I gotta end this sermon, yeah. <laughs> you see, because that, that holding fast, it's not about your happiness. It's not about your fulfillment. That, that holding fast is pointing to something bigger. And I know, I know there's so much brokenness. I know there, there have been so many people here today who have been divorced in the past or who are really struggling in their marriage right now or really struggling in their singleness right now. But that, that holding fast is, is a picture of something else. That the way the husband and the wife are supposed to hold fast to one another is a picture of the way God holds fast to us. You know when you were a kid and, you know, someone had like a baseball card or something like that that they really liked or a jacket and you're like, if you love that jacket so much, why don't you marry it? Remember that? 
Well, God loves sinners like us so much that he wants to marry us. And just like, you know, no one gets insight into your own personal sin like your spouse does, no one gets insight into our sin like the all-knowing, omniscient God. And yet he wants to marry us. And the Apostle Paul, trying to help the Ephesians who were brought up in Roman culture, unhealthy ideas of sex and unhealthy ideas about marriage and manhood and womanhood, is trying to tell the men, how to love their wives, how to sacrifice for their wives. And then Paul says this. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He quotes Genesis 2. The two shall become one flesh. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this isn't just a message or this isn't just a third point just aimed at married people. It's aimed at all of us because the picture of marriage is the picture of how God is committed to us. And then the way the whole Bible ends in Revelation chapter 19 says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the bride, in Genesis, the, the, bride, the, the bride is naked. She's innocent. And the, the groom is naked. They were naked and unashamed. And, but there's, they're clothed, but they're clothed in innocence. They're clothed in their righteous deeds. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Loved ones, the Bible begins with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding. And that first wedding is a picture and every wedding after it is a picture of God's lasting love for us. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this origin story of marriage. We thank you so much that marriage is your plan and your design. And Lord, you know all of the different perspectives, you know all of the different heartache, you know all of the different questions. For every person in this room. But Lord, I thank you that whether we are struggling in our marriage, struggling in our singleness, struggling with a divorce in our past or growing up in a divorced context with divorce, whatever it may be, God, thank you that although we fail in our commitments and we struggle to love the way we ought to love, and although we are so different from Adam and Eve who were naked and unashamed, there is so much shame over our sin, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would understand your great love for us. And that we would be ready for that day where ultimately we will be married to you. And so God, I, I pray that you would do a good work in us, Lord. I pray that we would be a, a church family that welcomes and that loves and that supports one another in singleness and in marriage and in everything um, that, uh, everything that we go through or that we're facing. Lord, we pray for your favor and grace. Be with us now as we respond in song. In Jesus' name, amen.